Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. In this episode, we are sharing with you a conversation with Consumer Voices' Robin Grant and Jocelyn Bogdan on an important issue as Robin and Jocelyn discuss how residents, families, and advocates can use guidance from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to help open nursing home doors. To view the slides mentioned in this presentation, visit theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for a conversation about how to use the CMS guidance to open nursing home doors. I'm Jocelyn Bogdan, Program and Policy Specialist at the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, and I'm joined today by our Policy Director, Robin Grant. We know this has been a very long year for nursing home residents and their families. And there was a lot of relief when CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, revised their nursing home visitation guidance in March. What we wanna do is have a discussion about that revised guidance, as well as some changes the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have made regarding quarantine guidance and some very recent changes that they've just made with regards to masking and nursing home activities. I'm going to briefly talk about some of the changes we've seen to the guidance, and then Robin and I are going to have a conversation about the questions and concerns we've been hearing from family members since the revised guidance came out. We are not going to be taking questions um, today, but we are going to be answering questions that people have been coming to us with in the past about how to use the guidance to advocate for your loved ones. And after that, Robin is going to talk about general advocacy strategies you can use when working with your facility. One thing I wanna point out is that while we know there are many family members out there listening and hopefully lots of advocates and residents as well, it's important to always remember that the right to visitation lies with the resident. So while we may be addressing family members at some points, the rights we discuss pertain to your loved ones in facilities. I also want to be clear that the CMS guidance applies to nursing homes since they're regulated at the federal level. So most of what we'll be talking about today is going to be specific to nursing homes. And so, as most of you know, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, CMS shut down visitation in nursing homes. There was a total ban at the beginning. It was eased a bit in September of 2020. And now, as a result of high vaccination rates among nursing home residents, it's been eased quite a bit more. And so I'm just going to quickly mention some key points from the revised CMS guidance released in March. First, and this has been there throughout, but it is really important for residents, family members, and advocates to remember, visitation is person-centered. This means that the residents' needs need to be considered when figuring out how and when visitation occurs. Second, and this is a big improvement from the older guidance, now indoor visitation should occur at all times for all residents with the exception of a very few specific circumstances. Those circumstances include when a resident is unvaccinated and the COVID-19 positivity rate in the county where the nursing home is, is over 10% and less than 70% of the residents in that facility have been vaccinated or when a resident has a confirmed case of COVID-19, or when a resident is in quarantine. And another time is when a facility has shut down for outbreak testing or because of an outbreak, which we're gonna dig into in a bit. So if you're a resident and none of these situations apply to you, then you should be allowed to have indoor visitation. And even if those situations do apply, you should still be able to have compassionate care visits if you qualify. And we'll discuss more about that in a minute. 
Another big change is that vaccinated residents are permitted to touch and hug their loved ones. And according to very recent CDC guidance, if residents and their visitors are both vaccinated and are alone in the residence room or in another designated visitation room, they do not have to wear masks or socially distance. Now, if residents are not vaccinated, then they need to continue to socially distance and wear proper PPE. And just while we're talking about this new CDC guidance that just came out, another recent update is that fully vaccinated residents can now participate in communal activities and dining with other fully vaccinated residents without distancing or PPE. However, if unvaccinated residents or staff are present, everyone should wear PPE and those who are unvaccinated should socially distance. And another key point from the guidance is that while CMS encourages visitors to get vaccinated and facilities may encourage visitors to be tested, visitors should not be required to be tested or vaccinated as a condition of visitation. There are several other changes in the updated guidance, which we'll discuss when we talk about some of the challenges we know people are facing. But something really important to remember is that nursing homes must facilitate in-person visitation. And if they don't, and they don't have an adequate reason related to clinical necessity or resident safety, then they can be subject to citation and enforcement actions. And so that brings up two important things. I just want to Two points I want to make right now before we dig into your issues and concerns. First, when you, assuming you're a family member trying to visit your loved one, approach your facility about this, have the guidance with you. Print it out. Highlight it. If you can't print it, download it on your phone. Ask the facility what their reasons are. This is really important, and I know, Robin, you're going to emphasize this again later, but if they're denying you visitation and you don't, they don't have a reason related to resident safety or clinical necessity, you need to point that out to them. And if they don't have that valid reason and they continue to deny visitation, then you need to file a complaint. I know Robin is going to talk about this later, but it's really important that facilities are held accountable. And this is an area where they're absolutely subject to citation and enforcement. So do not let them off the hook. File a complaint with your state survey agency. And the last thing I want to talk about before opening up our discussion is the changes the CDC has made to when residents need to quarantine. And this matters because one of the reasons a facility can deny indoor visitation is when a resident is in quarantine. There are a couple situations where this arises, and here are just some of the key points. When a resident is newly admitted or being readmitted to a facility and they are vaccinated, they do not need to quarantine unless they have been in close contact and had prolonged exposure. This means within six feet for 15 minutes or more with someone who is COVID-19. However, if a resident is not vaccinated and is newly admitted or being readmitted, or if they have been in close contact with prolonged exposure to someone with COVID-19, then they will be required to quarantine for 14 days. When a resident leaves a facility for more than 24 hours, those same rules apply. So if you're a resident, you go to stay with family for a few days and you've been vaccinated, you aren't in close contact with anyone with COVID-19, you do not need to quarantine when you return. But importantly, if you are not vaccinated or if you have been in close contact with someone with COVID-19 and you're gone for that amount of time, you will have to quarantine. And finally, there's the situation where you leave the facility for less than 24 hours. In that case, whether or not you're vaccinated does not matter. If you haven't had close 
contact with someone with COVID-19, you should not be required to quarantine. If you do have close contact, then you will be required to quarantine. So that's quarantine in a quick nutshell. We are going to talk more about it later. And we do have information on all of this at our website at www.theconsumervoice.org. And I think that is enough of me just talking at you. I want to turn this into an actual conversation and bring in Robin so that we can start talking about the issues a lot of people have been having with this new guidance. And so to start with, one of the biggest changes in this guidance pertains to indoor visitation. So Robin, despite the new guidance, we've heard of facilities denying indoor visitation for residents. Can they do this? So the answer is no, except under a few very specific circumstances. Um, and you mentioned those in the intro. So the CDC, uh, CMS sorry, guidance says that the facility should allow visitation at all times for all residents, except as you noted, for four very specific situations. So the first three situations apply to individual residents. So situation number one, indoor visits are not permitted for residents who are not vaccinated when the facility's COVID-19 county positivity rate is higher than 10% and the resident vaccination rate in the facility is less than 70%. That's situation number one. So situation number two is indoor visits are not permitted for residents who have a confirmed case of COVID. And then the third situation is um, uh, for residents who are in quarantine. They are not permitted to have indoor visits. The fourth situation does not apply um, necessarily to individual residents, but um, the facility can refuse indoor visitation under certain circumstances when there is an outbreak. And you mentioned um, in, in your introduction that we're going to dig in a little more to um, what an outbreak is in, in just a little bit. So those four situations are the only times identified in the guidance when indoor visitation can be denied. So that is extremely important um, for family members to know. Um, did I leave anything out or is there anything you'd like to add? Um, no, I think, I think that's, that's right. Okay. So you know that both of us have been hearing a lot from families um, since the um, guidance came out. And, and a major concern that family members are raising with us is that in many cases, the length and frequency of visits are being really limited. And sometimes to as little as 15 minutes once a week. So can a facility do this? Um, and is there any way to use the guidance to advocate for longer, more frequent visits? So that's, that's a really good question. And as you said, we've heard this directly from several family members. The CMS guidance, while it states what we've both already said, that facilities should allow indoor visitation at all times for everyone, they can consider scheduling visits for specific lengths of time to help ensure all residents are able to receive visitors. And they can consider how the total number of residents in a facility may affect their ability to maintain the core principles of infection prevention. So what does that mean? Basically, yes, the facility can limit the length and frequency of your visits, but 
They cannot do it arbitrarily. Remember, visitation has to be person-centered. So let's think about what that means. Is a 15-minute visit long enough for your loved one after this year of isolation? Is it long enough for someone with dementia? Probably not. I know that when my grandmother was in a nursing home, it often took the first 15 minutes of a visit for her to even realize who I was. And then, you know, after that time, it was like a light switch and we were able to have a really nice visit, but she needed that time. So for a lot of people, that 15 minute visit might not make sense. It might not be person-centered in the way the guidance intends. So if that 15 minute visit doesn't feel sufficient or alternatively, if visiting once a week is, is disorienting to your loved one, ask the facility for a longer or more frequent visit. Remind them that visitation should be person-centered and tell them that the visit isn't enough. Um, and if they refuse, this is where again, you need to ask them why, why are they limiting the visit? Their reasons here really matter because if their reasons relate to COVID-19 infection prevention, so let's say the facility is quite small and there are just too many visitors to accommodate, then you need to ask them about alternatives. The facility should work with you to enable the person-centered visits that the resident needs. Um, but if their reasons aren't tied to infection prevention, and I think in a lot of cases they might not be, um, if the facility um, doesn't give you an adequate reason, then they should be allowing those longer and more frequent visits. And in a few minutes, Robin, I know you're going to talk about what to do if they refuse, um, what and how you can advocate. But while we're talking about when facilities can and cannot refuse visitation, I just want to throw this back to you, Robin, and ask, can a facility refuse to allow visitation because they're understaffed? This is something we have heard about since the moment the ban, the initial visitation ban ended and people first started re-entering facilities. Under this new guidance, what happens if the facility tries to do this? Can they, can they just refuse visitation because they say there isn't enough staff? I'm so glad uh, that you raised this question, Jocelyn, because as you said, uh, we've been hearing this a lot. Um, from families and, and also from ombudsmen who are saying that's, that's what family members are, are being told. We can't have visitation because we don't have enough staff um, to facilitate yeah. visitation. So can they say that? And, and um, is that a valid reason? Um, the answer is no, according to the guidance. There's absolutely no place in the CMS guidance where it states that not having staff is a permissible reason for refusing visitation. So let me just do a, a slightly deeper dive into that. So um, as we both mentioned earlier, the guidance says that except for a few circumstances, which we talked about a little bit earlier, facilities should allow indoor visitation at all times for all residents. So the four situations that I talked about are the only exceptions identified in the guidance, the only exceptions when visitation can be shut down. There is nothing about staffing in the guidance, period. In addition, as you noted, um, a nursing home must, that word is a very strong word, must facilitate in-person visitation and would be subject to enforcement action if it failed to facilitate visitation without having um, a, an adequate reason that is tied specifically to clinical necessity or resident safety. So again, there's no mention of staffing as a reason for limiting visitation. 
So families should start from the get-go by making those points with the facility. Um, and, and you can put the guidance out in front of them and say, show, show me, help me understand where it says that you can um, uh, deny visitation because you're short staffed or you don't have enough staff. So that would be um, the starting place. But if the facility um, continues to, not, to deny visitation because it says it doesn't have enough staff, I recommend that families ask the director of nursing or the administrator to clarify for them, what is the status of staffing in the facility? You know, federal nursing home regulations require facilities to have sufficient staff to meet each resident's needs and to attain or maintain the resident's highest possible level of functioning and well-being. So the highest level of physical, mental, psychosocial well-being. So a facility can't have this both ways. Either the facility is complying with the federal requirements and has sufficient staff, which means it has enough staff to facilitate visitation, or it doesn't which means it would be violating federal regulations and possibly placing residents at risk. And in that case, you should file a complaint with your state survey agency, which is what um, you've been referring to several times in terms of filing complaints. There are some other general steps that you could take that um, I'll make sure to talk about um, later. So um, that, that I think is the, the, the best approach um, when you're hearing you can't have visitation because of staffing. But you know, um, Jocelyn, something else um, you know that we're hearing from families um, is a question about where they're allowed to have the visit. Right. So of course, you know, the most private place would be in the residence room. Um, and being in the, the room um, also gives family members a, a chance to check out the physical environment and make sure everything is okay and get a sense of how things are going. But a number of families are telling us that they're not being permitted to visit in their loved one's room and instead have to go elsewhere um, in the facility. So can they do that? Can, can a facility restrict a family member from visiting a loved one in a room? That's, that's another really good question. And, you know, this answer is going to really depend on what the resident's living situation is. So if a resident doesn't have a roommate, then the facility should be allowing this in-room visitation. There's no reason not to. Nothing in the guidance suggests this shouldn't happen. And being alone in the room actually helps ensure social distancing from other residents. Um, if there is a roommate, then it becomes a little more complicated. The revised guidance states that residents who share a room should not have visits in their room if possible. So the answer really turns a little bit on that if possible part. If the health status of the resident prevents them from leaving the room, then the guidance says the facility should try to enable that in-room visitation while following all infection prevention guidelines. Okay, that, that, that's helpful. Um, but we're also hearing about situations really sadly where um, residents um, haven't been getting the assistance they need and, and have become dehydrated or lost a lot of weight. So what about a situation um, if the resident needs help eating and has lost you know, 40 pounds since the beginning of the pandemic? How does that play in? 
Yeah, and that's hard because we've we've heard of a lot of people in those in those situations. Um, and you know, <clears throat> it's a situation here where the resident might, you know, per the guidance, be physically able to leave the room. It's you know, it's unclear if they've lost forty pounds, what condition they're in. But assuming that physically they're not confined to their beds and they can physically move to another part of the facility. Um, you know, then you're dealing with something a little different. But, you know, in this circumstance, their health status still really suggests that the in-room visitation is necessary so that the visitor can provide that assistance they need to eat. Um, and so if you're in that situation, that's what you argue, that the resident's health status really requires those in-room visits in the same way that being physically unable to leave would. And that this person-centered visitation that we keep emphasizing that is so important would include these in-room visits so that you can help assist your loved one with their eating or drinking or you know their other needs. And you know, one more thing I wanna mention here, if this is your situation, if you're a family member and your loved one has lost a large amount of weight, um, and again, you know, we know this has happened a lot since the start of the pandemic, that weight loss should make them eligible for compassionate care visits. And what that means is that even when other visitation is shut down in those circumstances that you know Robin just talked about, you should still be able to get in and visit them. So could you say a little bit more um, about compassionate care? Because we are still hearing that, that there are some facilities that believe that compassionate care is limited just to incidences when um, the resident is at the end of life. Is that true? Right. So no, that's not true. But, you know, I think it's actually maybe useful to take a step back here and just talk for a minute about what compassionate care is. Um, to be honest, it's a little hard to define compassionate care because CMS has never provided us with an actual definition. Um, but, but before I say anything else to just address your question, the one thing CMS has said repeatedly now, and we know there are facilities out there that haven't listened, but this is really important for residents and families to understand, compassionate care is not just for end of life. So I just, I want to start off with that, that that is incorrect. Um, but for anyone listening who hasn't heard of compassionate care visits before, and I realize that, well, we at Consumer Voice, um, we've been talking about this and grappling with compassionate care for a year. Um, but for a lot of people out there, you know, you or your loved one might be new to a facility, might have just started navigating this whole process. So compassionate care visits, they're a special category of visits where the visitor provides comfort, support, and or assistance to a resident whose well-being is suffering or at risk or to someone who is dying. And while CMS doesn't define it, they do list some examples their examples are not comprehensive. There are just a few situations that, that do qualify. Um, and so just to go over those, um, someone new to a facility who may have previously been living with family and is now struggling with this change in environment, that would qualify for compassionate care. Um, a resident who is grieving because someone they loved, a family member or friend has passed away, qualifies for compassionate care. Um, a resident who needs cueing or encouragement with eating or drinking that was maybe previously provided by a family member or a caregiver who is now experiencing weight loss or dehydration. Um, and then their final example is a resident who used to be very communicative, talking a lot, who's now experiencing emotional distress. They're quiet. They're crying a lot when they didn't used to cry. Um, all of those situations are examples that CMS has given of things that 
will qualify for compassionate care. Um, so when a resident is suffering emotionally or physically, or if they're experiencing physical distress or some kind of decline, that's where compassionate care comes in. And if you visit the Consumer Voice website, we actually have a fact sheet called Making the Case for Compassionate Care that really goes into all of this a lot more. Um, and so what's different about these visits is that they continue regardless of what else is going on, regardless of whether or not the resident falls into one of those categories we talked about earlier. And importantly, they continue even when a facility shuts down for an outbreak. The resident is always entitled to these visits. And whether or not someone can receive these visits needs to, again, be decided in a person-centered way. So between the facility, the resident, the representative, family members, loved ones, the ombudsman, and these visits don't have to be from family members. That's something else that I think sometimes people don't understand. They can be from anyone who meets the resident's needs. So just to go back to what we were talking about a moment ago, Robin, when you were asking about, um, you know, the, the loved one who has lost this amount of weight, in that case, you should absolutely ask for this compassionate care visitation because that fits right in to the examples that they give. Um, do, you, do you have anything to add to that? I know this is a big topic, so... It is a big topic and it's an extremely important one because it, it is um, the, the um, type of visitation that is always, always permitted. And I think that's the, the key thing for, for people to take away. So um, no, I think you did a great job. With that. Okay. Um, so I just want to switch gears a bit then and um, ask what a facility can require of a visitor. Um, you know, we've heard of facilities, you know, even now since this guidance telling family members they cannot enter the facility without a negative COVID test in hand or that they need to be vaccinated. So can, can facilities do this? So I know you referred to this at the beginning of mm -hmm. our um, conversation, um, but I wanna stress that the answer to both questions is a very straightforward and clear no. The CMS guidance is very um, explicit about this. It states that visitors should not be required to be tested or vaccinated or to show proof that they've been tested or vaccinated. So while facilities can certainly encourage you to be tested and encourage you to be vaccinated, they cannot require it. Um, yeah, I, can I just jump in really quick? I yeah, just want to say yeah. this is this is another a, a scenario where what I mentioned earlier, printing out the guidance can be really helpful. If you are going to a facility or if you have if your loved one is in a facility that is telling you that this is required, it is very clear cut in the guidance. So print out that guidance, open it up on your phone and show them exactly where it says this, because this should not need additional advocacy. It is it's a very clear cut issue. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, we're not always so lucky that things are that straightforward, but this this is one of those. Yeah. Uh, so definitely just highlight it and point to it. So speaking of testing, um, I mentioned outbreak testing, and so did you actually earlier mm -hmm. in our discussion. Um, and we said that we talk about it a little more. So I think I think we're we're at that point. And, and so can you explain what outbreak testing is? Sure. And yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we're going into this a bit more because this is a really big concern for families and residents because outbreaks can almost entirely shut facilities down. Um, so, so an outbreak happens if someone at a facility tests positive for COVID-19 
a resident or a staff member, it is considered an outbreak. Um, and before, if there was an outbreak, um, that was it. The facility just shut down. Um, and the new guidance is better, but it's a little more complicated. So as soon as a facility identifies a case of COVID-19, almost all visitation is immediately suspended so that the facility can conduct outbreak testing. Remember, compassionate care, that continues, but everything else is going to stop for this testing. And so the facility is gonna complete at least one round of facility-wide testing of everyone. Now, after that testing, if there are no additional COVID-19 cases in any other areas of the facility, then visitation will resume everywhere except for that area or unit of the facility where there was that one positive case. All right, so it's a situation where you have one positive case, you suspend visitation to test, no additional cases. So that one area where the positive case was stays shut down, but everywhere else can now reopen. But now let's say there are two more residents who test positive in that same part of the facility where that first case happened. It's actually the same situation. That one area, because this is all confined to one specific area of the facility, they stay shut down. And now under the new guidance, the rest of the facility can reopen. All right. What happens though, if there are additional cases in other areas of the facility? Then all visitation is gonna be suspended until the facility meets the criteria to discontinue outbreak testing. So this is a situation where unfortunately it, it looks like the virus is probably spread. And in that case, the whole facility is going to shut down to visitation, except again for compassionate care. So, um, in, in your um, explanation, you talked about um, residents um, having, um, getting, getting COVID. Right. But what, what about a situation where a staff member, one staff member, tests positive, and then this outbreak testing finds there are no other cases in the facility? You know, what happens then? Does the facility have to shut down for 14 days? That's a really good question. And you know, we actually got contacted about from a family member recently about that very scenario. Um, and no, you know, I know there was some concern and confusion around this um, initially, but according to the guidance, it, it appears that if that staff member tests positive and then they're gone, you know, they're, they don't live at the facility, they're home quarantining, they're no longer in the facility, then that facility would still suspend visitation to conduct their outbreak testing. But if they find that no one else tests positive, then that's it. They reopen to visitation. Um, and, and that's basically it. I don't know if there's anything you want to add about outbreaks, Robin, um, or... Uh, no, just um, want to stress that um, we're, we're certainly glad to see that CMS has changed things from just one case, shutting everything down for 14 days. Um, so this definitely permits uh, more visitation than we had in the past. So that's, that's a, a good thing. Absolutely. No, it's, this, is, this is a really big improvement for a lot of families. It's going to enable visitation to continue where before it really couldn't. Um, Another big concern that we've heard a lot about since the new guidance came out is quarantine. Um, mm -hmm. And as you know, I mentioned earlier, the CDC thankfully um, issued updated guidance recently around this that makes it much more clear when residents are and are not required to quarantine. Um, 
So Robin, what, what happens when a resident is new to a facility? You know, I heard from a family member not that long ago who was asking whether or not her mother could be forced to quarantine when entering a new facility. She was really concerned because her mom was having a hard adjustment and the daughter wanted to be there to really help her adjust to the facility. So what, how does that work? There is um, a lot of misunderstanding and, and confusion around quarantine, so I'm really glad that you, you asked that question. Um, the answer to whether um, a resident can be quarantined when she enters a new facility is, it depends. I know nobody likes that answer at all, um, but it does depend. So what does it depend on? It depends on the resident's vaccination status. It depends on whether the resident has had COVID in the past three months. And it also depends on whether the resident has had prolonged close contact with someone with COVID. And you had mentioned earlier, but it's, um, I think, just helpful to repeat um, that prolonged um, means 15 minutes or more. Um, and close contact means within six feet. Okay. So a resident should not be quarantined upon admission if they're vaccinated and have not had prolonged close contact with anyone with COVID-19. And they shouldn't be quarantined. So that's one situation. The other is they shouldn't be quarantined if they've had COVID in the past 90 days. Um, but one other thing um, I wanna add um, to go just a step further. If the resident does end up in quarantine when she enters the facility, it doesn't necessarily mean that she can't receive any visits at all. You mentioned that the resident is having a hard time. Um, the right. family member that, that called you was concerned because her mother is, is struggling um, after having um, moved into the facility. That means the resident should qualify for compassionate care visits. Because when you explained um, compassionate care, you noted specifically that one of the examples that CMS lists is when a resident is struggling with a change in environment and doesn't have that family support after moving into a nursing home. So this situation absolutely fits um, the intent of compassionate care. Right. Um, one other thing is to remember that those visits, compassionate care visits, continue even when a resident is in quarantine. So this um, family member's loved one should be able to, should receive compassionate care visits if, if she has to go into quarantine. So this issue of, of quarantine, um, as I mentioned, has, has created some confusion and misunderstanding. Um, we've talked about quarantine upon admission. So that's a question that's come up a lot. But another question, um, Jocelyn, that's come up is whether residents have to be quarantined if they leave the facility, um, say for a medical appointment, or they go home for a visit. So maybe they go home um, for dinner or for lunch and then come back to the facility. So is quarantine required in those situations? And does it matter how long somebody's outside of the facility? Yeah, and you know, you're right. 
quarantine is really important. This is very important um, to understand because there's been so much confusion. And, you know, we've actually heard, and this is awful, that some residents have neglected their doctor's appointments. They're avoiding them because they're scared if they leave their facility, they're going to be put in quarantine when they come back. And, you know, that's awful. But, you know, after the year we've had, um, this isolation, being able to visit family, to have lunch with your loved ones, this is this is equally important. Um, and in some cases, residents are choosing not to do either of these things because they're afraid it will then mean they're subject to 14 days of isolation. And so something that's important to always remember here, if you're a resident and you're listening, you can leave your nursing home whenever you like. If you're a family member, your loved one has that right to leave. They're not a prisoner. But there are these situations where they may be required to quarantine. Um, there are also situations where they should not be. So to get back to your question, Robin, if a resident leaves the facility for less than 24 hours for this doctor's visit, for lunch with their family, for an evening out, and they do not have that prolonged exposure, that close contact that you talked about um, to someone with COVID-19, then they are not required to quarantine. This is really important because residents should not be afraid to leave for short periods of time. Without that exposure to someone with COVID-19, if you leave for less than 24 hours, you should not be subject to quarantine. Now, you know, you asked, you know, what happens? Does, does it depend on the timing? And yes, so if you leave for 24 hours or longer, it's a little bit of a different situation. For residents who are vaccinated and haven't had that prolonged contact with someone with COVID-19, and for residents who, and you mentioned this earlier, who, when you were talking about new admissions, for a resident who themselves has had COVID-19 in the past 90 days, they don't have to quarantine. So they can leave for more than 24 hours and they don't need to quarantine. But for everyone else, you have that close contact if you're vaccinated and for all unvaccinated residents, you're gonna be in a situation if you leave for more than 24 hours where you do have to quarantine. So that's just something that a resident should really think about and consider beforehand. And as a family member who has a loved one, you should really consider what the implications will be for them as well. Um, but it's always the resident's choice what to do. Um, and I, I do wanna just stop for a second and really emphasize an aspect of quarantine that some people I think don't really consider or take into account. Um, and that issue is where residents are quarantined. And so for the residents listening, this is a really important issue. It's when we talk about quarantine, it isn't just the isolation, the lack of activities and the lack of visitation. I mean, those things are all huge and should be enough. But in most cases, when a resident is quarantined, they're often somewhere in the facility that is not their own room, their own space, their, their home. Um, they're without their personal things. They're without their pictures on the walls. They're without maybe their favorite view or their bedding. And so it's really important that no one ends up in quarantine unless it's absolutely necessary. For many residents, it's a really disorienting process as it, as it would be for most of us to end up somewhere else. Um, and so quarantine is also a great example of something I mentioned at the start. It's an issue where you should 
absolutely have that CDC guidance printed out so you can show it to the facility. If you were a resident who's leaving for less than 24 hours, if you're a family member whose vaccinated loved one is moving into a new facility, have that guidance to show them. Sometimes it can be hard for an individual facility to keep track of all these updates and changes. And that's giving them the benefit of the doubt, but showing them exactly what the CDC is saying in writing may do a lot to help with your advocacy. And with that, I wanna turn this back over to you, Robin. I know you have a lot to say about advocacy. And now that everyone listening knows what issues people have been encountering and how they can really use the guidance, I know you wanna be able to walk everyone through what steps to take when they're working with their facilities. Thank you, Jocelyn. One um, uh, additional point to um, what you said about quarantine is we do have on our website, which again is www.theconsumervoice.org, um, a, a fact sheet that talks about quarantine. And we have tables that uh, lay it out, um, we hope in a way that's easily understandable in, in terms of when quarantine is required and when, and when it's not. So um, hopefully that might be an additional resource that, that people can use. Definitely. So in the best of all world, right, the CMS guidance, the CDC guidance will open those nursing home doors so you can visit your loved one. And we certainly are, the good news is we are aware of many families who've been able to use the guidance successfully. They've done exactly what Jocelyn said. They've printed it off and they've gone in and they've pointed to it and the facility has read it and said, that's right, and changed um, its, its policies and its practices. So um, the, don't forget the power of the guidance. It's uh, critically important. But there may be times when you whip out your guidance, because of course you always have it with you, right? You point out the guidance, make your case, but maybe it doesn't work. Um, you still have concerns about your loved one's access to visitors um, and whether they're being inappropriately quarantined. So I wanna share with you some just general overall advocacy strategies and tips for you to use if, if that's the case. Um, I'm gonna go through um, um, several points and I just wanna stress that I'm not listing them in any particular order. You don't have to do number one, then number two, number three. Um, you can do them all once if, if, um, if you can. Um, so in addition to using the guidance, then one strategy is to file a grievance with the facility. Hopefully, uh, if you have, uh, if you're a resident or you're a family member with um, a loved one in a nursing facility, you know what the facility's grievance process is. Every facility has to have a grievance process and they have to have an individual who oversees that process. And that person is called the grievance official. They have a slightly different name, but there must be somebody in the facility who is responsible for the grievance process. And once you file um, that complaint or that concern, um, and you can do it you know, orally, you can do it in writing, the facility has to investigate the issue and give you a written response that specifically states what action has been taken or will be taken to address the grievance. So try that and see what happens. Another strategy 
is to raise your concerns about visitation at the next care plan conference or request a special care plan conference. So the whole purpose of a care plan meeting is to talk about how to meet the needs um, of the resident. Um, it's a perfect place to talk about what the length of the visit, frequency, location of the visit should be to support the well-being of your loved one. The whole purpose is we're trying to figure out what's the best way to meet the needs. The needs um, visitation has to be person-centered. So talk about how to make visitation support the well-being of your loved one. Um, and um, if necessary, how visitation can address any decline um, that your loved one may have experienced or prevent decline to begin with. Um, the more um, you can work things out um, at the care plan meeting and get it into the written care plan, um, then you have the care plan to point to in terms of um, how you agree visitation should be. So this is where you would make your case. Um, for why um, your loved one needs more than a 15-minute visit and more than once a week because it ties directly to the well-being of the resident. Another uh, step that you can take um, in your advocacy is to reach out to your long-term care ombudsman program. I hope that everybody listening um, today knows about the ombudsman program. Um, uh, the ombudsman is an advocate for nursing home residents and is there to represent the resident's interests. So as long as your family member, as long as your loved one wants to see you, um, the ombudsman certainly may be able to help you resolve the situation. And we have been hearing throughout the pandemic that ombudsmen in many cases have been very successful. Um, in working um, family and the facility to um, allow visitation um, to happen. So um, you should certainly think um, about turning to um, your long-term care ombudsman. Um, another reason to contact the um, ombudsman program is because it's just important that they know what's happening in your loved one's facility. Um, that gives them the bigger picture and they can um, have that information so um, they can uh, determine what advocacy they can take at the, at the facility level if necessary. On our uh, website, when you go to the www.theconsumervoice.org, um, you can see at the top a tab that says get help. And if you click on that, you'll be directed to a map of United States and you can click on your state and um, it'll give you information about how to contact the Ombudsman program. Um, one of the, the most important steps I think that you can take in your advocacy strategy is to contact the Ombudsman program. Another strategy is to work with the family council in the facility if there is one. Um, councils are groups of family um, there are also resident councils, but we're focusing primarily on, on, on families um, here. So the family council is a way um, for families to come together, um, to connect, to support each other, to identify issues that are impacting residents um, throughout the facility or in most of the facility, and then to take 
those concerns to um, the administration and work to get them addressed. Um, so if your facility has a family council, consider joining it. Facilities don't have to have a family council, but if a family member wants to form one, uh, if more than one family member wants to, to, to form a council, um, the facility must allow uh, them to, to, to form. If your facility does not have a council, consider starting one. Um, if this is truly a case of um, strength in, in numbers and, and safety in numbers. It, it, um, this would be a very good place to talk about the facility's policies regarding visitation um, and any concerns that we share with other family members and to have a discussion um, to take that to the administrator um, and, and talk about how you all can work together to develop um, visitation policies that, that, that um, work for residents. So family council is another option. And then as Jocelyn mentioned, and I think I mentioned it at, at some point, families should always, always, always file a complaint with the state survey agency. So um, this agency is the agency that is responsible for um, oversight of nursing homes um, and investigating nursing home complaints. So we think it's incredibly important for, for a number of reasons. First of all, because if um, the, the, the investigators, the surveyors come in and verify the complaint, the facility will have to take action. Um, and the net result would hopefully be that visitation um, would, um, would occur in, in, in a way that's in accordance with the guidance and is person-centered. Um, but the other uh, reason is it's, we at, uh, at Consumer Voice really want to know how responsive the state survey agencies are being. So, um, in order to do that, we need to, you know, to make sure that you file a complaint so we can see what the response um, to that um, complaint that you're filing is. So hopefully you can use one or more of those advocacy strategies and, and tips and you'll be successful. But unfortunately and sadly, we know that even taking all those actions may not resolve the visitation issue. So for those of you who joined us today who are families, I want you to know that we share your frustration and we are advocating uh, aggressively at the national level to ease the restrictions on visitation with a goal of fully restoring residents' rights to visitation. So there's another level of advocacy that you can do as families that would help move us toward that goal and might even address your particular concern. Um, so let me um, touch on two additional strategies. The first is to contact your loved one's elected official. Um, so that means your state legislators, that means members of Congress. Um, uh, there are also county officials that you could contact, but uh, we recommend certainly the state and, and federal legislators. Tell them what's going on. Tell them what your loved one is experiencing. 
they need to know what's happening in nursing homes in their jurisdiction. In addition, legislators generally have something called constituent services. So that's where the office um, can help sometimes with problems that constituents are having. Your loved one is in the legislator's district, is a constituent. So it may be that they may be able to do something to help with the situation. So that, that's always a possibility as well. Um, we, throughout all this, um, have, are aware of families um, in you know, several parts of the country that have actually gone to their state legislators and told them about the issues they've been facing with visitation. Um, and that has triggered some state legislation, which is just, uh, just phenomenal. Um, that has allowed, um, made some changes in the visitation um, policy. So um, do not uh, underestimate the importance of, of, of contacting your, your local officials. They need to know. And finally, I really encourage you to reach out to the media. I think we've all seen throughout the pandemic um, that getting media attention can create pressure and, and incentive for change. So you can communicate directly with a particular reporter or you can write an editorial, a letter to the editor, an op-ed for your local paper, for example, uh, or for your state paper. You can also use social media. Um, I know in talking with Jocelyn um, that sometimes um, you should consider you know, tagging your nursing home, tagging their corporate owners and tagging your legislators as well. Because sometimes, um, just sometimes, nursing homes and the companies that own and operate them respond faster uh, to issues that are raised on social media um, because they certainly want to avoid the um, unwanted uh, attention. But putting some, having something appear on TV or um, in, in the media um, helps educate the public about what's going on. Um, and can help generate support and momentum for overall changes. So um, really urge you to kind of go the, the, the extra mile and, and reach out um, to media. Um, you, um, it can really be powerful. Um, and, and we have seen at the national level how articles um, in, in newspapers and on TV have created pressure um, which we really believe has um, contributed to CMS changing its visitation policies over these uh, past months. One last thing that I'd like to um, ask, ask all of you who are family members um, to consider. We wanna hear about your experience with visitation. On our website, we've actually just put up a survey for family members um, that would let us know what you're encountering with visitation now, you know, since the most recent guidance came out. Uh, we ask about um, things like the length of your visits, the frequency, uh, where you're allowed to visit, you know, the barriers that you're running into, uh, if, if any. So basically trying to get a sense of all different aspects of the visitation experience. And then we will take that information and use it in our advocacy directly with um, the federal government, with, with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, um, and we'll um, use it in our advocacy with 
um, uh, members of Congress. So please let us know um, what your experiences um, have been. So the best way, as you can see from um, the slide, for those of you who can see the slide, that the best way to access these materials is by going to, once again, www.theconsumervoice.org. Uh, and then you wanna click on um, the button under visitation for long-term care facilities. So in closing, uh, actually before I close, um, I just wanna ask Jocelyn, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought up social media because I, I do agree that that's something people don't think of when they're advocating right now, um, but I do think it has the power to make a difference. Um, and I know I've been um, thinking about some other questions that family members might be having. There's a lot out there. I just want to say, like, this is not, this is not the end. Um, we are still going to consider questions and issues. So when you fill in that survey, um, it's going to be really important to help us sort of shape the advocacy that we do so we can really understand um, you know, what, what the biggest issues most families are looking at right now are. So I think that family survey is just a huge, huge help to us. So if you're listening to this and you don't mind, we would really just strongly encourage you to, to take part in it. That's it. Thank you for emphasizing that because um, we had a previous iteration of, of, of a survey um, that uh, was gathering information about people's experience um, prior to the most recent guidance, the information we gained was so valuable. We were able to take it and put it into a report that got a lot of attention. It's something we can send to uh, legislators, we can send it to CMS, and we hope to be able to, to do something similar with um, this survey information as well, again, um, to push push um, our advocacy and, and uh, push for that full restoration um, as soon as possible of, of residents' rights to, to visit. Anything else, Jocelyn? Um, no, just as we close, I want to thank everyone on the back end who has helped us. And I just want to thank everybody who has listened because the more people that have this information, the more power, you know, people will have when, when they're dealing with this. So I think, I think having the information and knowing what the residents' rights are regarding visitation is just so important right now. So please share this with your friends, with other people um, who you know who have loved ones in facilities or other residents in facilities so that, you know, everybody really can understand what this guidance says and that there are ways to make it work for them. Absolutely. Well, well said. Thank you. So let me close out. In doing so, I just want to, to all of you who are family members, I want to say that um, we know that this past year has been heartbreaking and painful for all of you. And we want to thank you for all that you've done you know, day in and day out on behalf of your loved ones. I don't think you get a lot of thanks. And so we wanna take this opportunity um, to give you our heartfelt thanks. It may not always feel like it, but your advocacy makes a difference. So please know that you're appreciated and most of all, that you are not alone. 
So with that, thank you for taking time out of your very busy lives to spend this time with us. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, find more information about the campaign, and if you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you.